Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Puka and this is the Life Symposium. As you know, I'm a PhD university and, and a university researcher and um, I'm so glad to be here with uh, Dr. Gregory Shushan. Am, am I pronouncing your surname right? Yeah, close enough, Shushan. Shushan, okay. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, happy Halloween or Samhain or Samhain to all of you celebrating. I'm really glad to be having this conversation with you, Gregory. So, would you mind to introduce yourself for my audience? Um, yeah, well. I'm uh, Gregory Shushan, and uh, um, I'm a researcher on cross cultural afterlife beliefs and particularly their relationship to near death experiences. And I've done research um, mostly in um, comparing ancient civilizations and then also um, indigenous societies in uh, the Pacific and North America and Africa, um, and trying really to focus on eras and, and societies that don't have much or any, uh, first of all, Christian influence or any external religious influence, and also very little interaction between them. So, um, so it can get uh, kind of discrete samples as much as possible. Oh wow, then that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm I've been familiar with your research for quite some time now. So I think this conversation is a bit overdue, but, <laughs> but uh yeah, I'm really glad to have you to have you here. Thanks, thanks for having me on. And before we dive deeper into the conversation, I would just like to remind everybody that if you have any questions, you can super chat them. And so I will uh, just highlight them on screen and um, Dr. Uh, Shushan can uh, answer that. And uh, obviously we will by the end and in the info box. Our, the, or the show notes, you will find uh, links to uh, Dr. Shoshan's uh, website and, um, and his new book that we will um, definitely talk about during this conversation and to his patron. And so I would highly recommend you guys to check everything out. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to support my work, uh, of course, I would also appreciate your support uh, on Patreon and, uh, you know, with all the usual <laughs> ways of supporting the channel that I discussed with you guys. Uh, hello, Andrew and Dave in the chat. <laughs> so um, let's move on to our conversation. So I'd like to ask you first, how did you get into this kind of research? How, you know, uh, what was your academic journey into studying these matters? Sure, yeah. Um, I did my first degree, um, which was a BA in Egyptian archaeology at UCL, uh, University College London. And we were, you know, reading about afterlife texts, uh, books of the dead and coffin texts and pyramid texts and things like that. And uh, I was just kind of noticing that a lot of the descriptions of, of the afterlife journey were consistent with some of the um, phenomena related to near-death experiences in a very sort of broad general way and obviously uh, filtered through Egyptian culture and symbolism. But for example, um, they would describe, um, obviously the soul leaves the body in the form of the, the Bob bird. And then the, there's the experience of traveling through darkness, through tunnels, um, through gates and things like that, emerging into light. Um, encountering a being of light in the form of the sun god, Ray. Um, there's uh, deceased relatives in the other world um, that the person meets. There's a, um, a kind of 
uh, transformation and association with with divinity and all the different deities. So so the person is sort of explicitly um, becomes the sun god, even though they're traveling around the circuit of the afterlife with the sun god, and they also become the sky god and all these other deities. Um, most importantly, they, they become the uh, god of death, Osiris. And there's a very interesting and kind of explicit association between um, the corpse of Osiris and the individual seeing that corpse. And because that corpse, because the individual is Osiris, is effectively um, seeing his or her own corpse. And I took that as a symbolic um, kind of manifestation of, of the out-of-body experience, leaving the body and seeing the body below. And what's really interesting about it is, is in the, the text, I think it's the coffin text, they say that um, that experience of, of encountering the corpse of Osiris in the other world is the thing that enables the person to realize that they're dead and to move on to the next phase of the afterlife. And in NDEs, that's just what happens when, when people see their body, then they realize, wow, I'm dead. I'm outside of that, that thing that used to be me. So um, yeah, after kind of making those connections, I remembered um, I knew about near-death experiences already. And there was a book by Carol Zaleski called Other World Journeys. And she compared medieval other world journeys of uh, European monks and nuns with near-death experiences. And she came to a very different conclusion than I would have. She, she kind of, we can get into it later, it's, it's a little complex, but she basically concluded that um, they were all products of the religious imagination of the era. But to my way of thinking, um, because of all the similarities with NDEs, not only contextually, but phenomenologically, all the kind of, um, you know, leaving the body and seeing the body and all those sorts of things, um, they probably were NDEs that were elaborated over time um, and, and kind of conformed to, to the religious strictures as, as to turn them into didactic sort of texts. So anyway, <laughs> not waffling too much, the, the point is that um, I started thinking if NDEs are so, so similar to Egyptian afterlife beliefs and then there seems to be these medieval accounts, then what's going on in the world are, are afterlife beliefs around the world sort of based on near-death experiences and do people all over the place actually have these kinds of experiences? Mm. And so how did your research proceed after that? Uh, so then I, uh, for my uh, MA, I compared uh, Egyptian afterlife beliefs and Vedic Indian afterlife beliefs. Oh. So starting with the Rig Veda up through the Upanishads. Um, and there are no, to be clear about that, there are no, actual examples of near-death experiences in Egypt at all because they, you know, the, um, the uses to which writing was put was very limited. So it was all either documentary texts or official texts or, um, you know, laundry lists and, and uh, um, different kinds of accounting texts and religious texts. But there was no personal narrative. There was no context for a person to sit down and write, um, this weird thing happened to me. I, I died yesterday and came back to life. It just doesn't exist. Um, in India, um, there are references to, to near-death experiences in some of the, the religious texts. And there's also um, um, in re religious ritual and, and medical texts, actually. And there's also um, a sort of stream of apparently mythological uh, return from death accounts, um, beginning with the Rig Veda and then going up through the Upanishads and, and later, um, of a little boy named um, Nachikitas, who um, his father gets annoyed with him basically asking him too many questions all the time. And he says, you know, basically I, I send you to the underworld um, 
effectively killing him. So, so he kills him, his son in order to allow his son to learn all the stuff that he's asking him because he can't be bothered to ask him. So, uh, so this boy goes to the afterlife and he meets Yama, the Lord of the Dead, and he, um, you know, uh, learns all these things from Yama about the nature of the soul and the nature of the afterlife and uh, things like that. So again, it had these kind of very similar parallels to to NDEs and um, yeah. So so then I, I expanded that um, and and added in um, ancient China, uh, Mesopotamia. Um, focusing on Sumerian and Old Babylonian, because again, the, the areas eras that had the least amount of interaction with other cultures around them. Um, and then also Aztec and Maya. So, so I had sort of five geographically diverse world cultures. Was and, it wasn't a specific time frame? Or... No, um, because the, the Aztec and Maya are much later. So, um, but they had no contact with any of the old world sorts of civilizations. So effectively, they're all considered um, early civilizations, technically, because because they're the the earliest form of a civilization in that particular part of the world. Um, so the relative chronology didn't didn't really matter too much. The, the main thing was that they were uh, culturally distinct. And I mean, obviously, there was some there was trade between um, Mesopotamia and Egypt or, or whatever. But for the most part, you know, I, I wanted to keep them as um, um, yeah culturally distinct as possible. So your focus was um, cultures that have not been affected by Christianity. Right, right. And in, and in that case, not affected by even each other. So mm. it was a time before Buddhism. <gasps> sorry about that. <laughs> the time before Buddhism. So there wasn't in for so India and China didn't have a lot of cross fertilization in these earlier eras. So, um, yeah, and, and this is, you know, long, long before Christianity. So that that wasn't an issue for this stuff, except for the Mayan and Aztec. Um, because there, the, the texts that survive from the Mayan Aztec world are, there are some actual, um, you know, written texts that, that they produced. The Popovo is a famous Mayan one, um, but a lot of the material we have is from early missionaries and explorers. So those have to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, but there are from, there is a, an Aztec or um, Mexica, I think, some some um, Nahua tribe um, people from Mesoamerica, from Mexico. Um, there is an example of of a, a princess, as, as the guy translated it, um, who had an NDE. She she died and came back to life, and um, told about you know going to see this being of light in the other world and meeting her ancestors and and all these other things. So, um, and in China there are quite a few um, overt ancient NDEs that that are, um, you know, there's no speculation involved like there was in, in Egypt, for example. Hmm. Have you also addressed the Tibetan Book of the Dead? There is somebody in the chat asking uh, whether you have. I haven't, no. Um, I, I've used the Tibetan Book of the Dead uh, at least kind of philosophically to interpret, um, you know, what an afterlife might be like, because I think, um, this kind of jumping the gun, but but essentially, given all the diversity around the world with afterlife beliefs and with NDEs, I was trying to figure out what kind of um, coherent model there could be for an actual afterlife. And it seemed to me that uh, some of the Tibetan ideas uh, probably help explain it best. Yeah. Mm. yeah, we'll definitely get into that. And what was your PhD about? Uh, that that's what it was. It was this uh, cross-cultural oh, okay. study of all. Yeah, I, for my MA, it was um, the the Vedic. India and Egyptian, and then for the PhD, I, I added the other three. 
and that was published um as by Routledge, i think uh no uh bloomsbury oh uh, bloomsbury yeah i think that i uh, i thought that i saw a book by you that was published by Routledge. no i i think i'm in i'm in a couple of Routledge books articles but um mm. yeah, i don't have one of my own um but yeah that was called conceptions of the afterlife and early civilizations but it's going to be reissued next year as near-death experience in ancient civilizations um, by inner traditions and that's going to be a kind of somewhat of a reworking and and uh um updating of a lot of the stuff in it so like for example there was no um complete translation of the rig veda when i when i did the book and, and now there is so that'll be useful yeah and have you also um, compared uh, what you have found which we will be talking about shortly uh, with um, more recent outputs in terms of near-death experiences or have you solely focused on those ancient traditions uh recent in the sense of sort of contemporary yeah yeah not not really contemporary um only in the sense that i've used them as the sort of um western conceptual model for what a near-death experience is so i've used the kind of um the foundation of, of near-death studies research um as the sort of uh the comparative framework really mm -hmm. um rather than I haven't done any work with actual contemporary NDEs or, or whatever, but I mean even that the um, there's in near death studies there's a thing called the the Grayson scale developed by Bruce Grayson and that's probably the most useful um, kind of uh, schema for what a near death experience is and it lists a number of different um, uh, sub experiences that kind of make up what a near death experience is, but the the difficult thing about them and also the interesting thing about them is that no two two near-death experiences will have all of the components and in fact not even one will have every single one of the components because there's you know maybe um, a couple dozen of them or something some people hear music or um hear buzzing sounds or some people will have a life review where their whole life flashes before their eyes so um that's one of the interesting things is trying to figure out the degree to which they're similar similar across culture and then the degree to which they're different and then the degree to which they've influenced beliefs in an afterlife around the world hmm. so. so yeah let's dive uh, deeper into that um so what are the um, commonalities and in the differences between the near-death experiences that you have studied and then we can talk about you know the conception of afterlife that emerges <clears throat> out of them yeah um well one kind of major difference is in a lot of asian societies in india and japan for example china um when somebody dies and meets the being of light or whatever kind of deity in the other world and they're sent back to their body in, in the kind of western accounts that we're, we're mostly familiar with that you hear about on you know contemporary near-death studies or in popular media or whatever people are told um, by the being of light or, or Jesus or however they interpret this being of light, they're told um, you need to go back to uh, care for your children or look after your sick relative, or maybe there's some kind of um, thing that you didn't fulfill in your life that you need to, to kind of um, finally fulfill and, and, be, and, and bring your life around to a place where you've had a full life and you're, you're then able to die, that kind of thing. So it's a kind of self-development and caring thing combined whereas in um, these eastern cultures it's often a case of mistaken identity 
So the soul would go to the other world and they'd be told, you know what, we got the wrong Gregory Shushan. Um, <laughs> we, we meant to get the one who lives in this little village in Persia or whatever. Um, so they would send me back to my body and then they would get this, this other one um, who would then die for good. So, mm. so there is no uh, explanation, just the fact that the person was not the one that uh, they wanted. Yeah, they, they just mixed it up. They, they, he had the same name, um, maybe even lived in the same village, who knows. But, um, and you know, we can, whether either one of those is more believable, believable uh, being sent back for a particular purpose or being sent back because they mixed you up with someone else, even that is, I think, a cultural thing. To us, it might sound a little like, yeah, really, they, they got the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> but to, you know, people in Asian countries, they might think the same way about Western NDEs. So, but the weird, you know, the puzzling and, and kind of continuously um, intriguing thing about that is, so we have the, the death context, the dying context, um, the going to the other world, the meeting of being of light and being sent back and then returning from the dead. But then why is it different? Why the reason that they're sent back? Um, another example is, um, you know, this idea of a tunnel, that the, the popular idea of an NDE is that you go through a tunnel um, and emerge into brightness in the other world. Uh, for one thing, that tunnel is, is a little exaggerated. Um, it's usually just entering darkness and then the person kind of describes it as a tunnel. Uh, there was a kind of famous debate about this maybe 10 years ago or something about India because in Indian NDEs, they didn't describe a tunnel. They describe moving through darkness. So, so the famous NDE skeptic, uh, Susan Blackmore said, here's an example of NDEs not being the same across cultures. That means that they're just hallucinatory, um, but totally overlooking the fact that they're traveling through darkness <laughs> and going into this, this kind of other realm. But then in a lot of small scale societies specifically, which is interesting, um, they walk along a road to the other world. So, you know, in, in tribal societies in North America or the Pacific or Africa, um, they don't rush through a tunnel at all. They, they walk along, along a road to get to the afterlife, which um, that's challenging because you could even, you know, the, the debate sort of said, um, you know, one of the compelling uh, explanations for the lack of tunnels in India was they're rushing through darkness and only Westerners interpret it as, as a tunnel. But then the small scale societies just walking along a road, that's not even rushing through darkness. But it's still, um, you know, temporarily dead, traveling to the afterlife and then being sent back and all the other um, broadly thematic similarities. Mm. And how prevalent these common denominators are? You know, it's, um, it's really difficult to say. I, I would say the most common are, are these ones I've been talking about, the darkness, the light, um, a being, uh, relatives, and being sent back, but also people just kind of find themselves back in the body sometimes. But those are probably the most common. Um, the life review, that, which is, you know, a very kind of popular idea about an NDE, where your life flashes before your eyes. And, and people will often talk about it as if it's, um, they're experiencing every moment of their lives simultaneously. And they're also experiencing the emotions that were associated with it, not just of, of their emotions, but the emotions of um, the person that whatever event happened to so if i if i hurt somebody in this in this life i would re-experience that from their position um in the next life during my life review um, but the interesting thing about that is life reviews are, are almost totally lacking in um, small-scale indigenous societies there's there's very very few of them 
And I think even in the West, they're, they're um, not nearly as many, they're not nearly as popular as people think. They seem to be mostly associated with when people think they're going to die from some sudden accident, but they don't, but they never really were in danger of death to begin with. So for example, if somebody, um, there, there was a study about this in the 19th century of people who fell from heights, um, uh, mountain climbers who would fall off mountains and things like that. And they'd have a full-blown life review and, and other NDE features on the way down. And then they would land softly and maybe have a broken arm and like not even near death at all. So, so there was no temporary clinical death and then return to life. Um, and it's, it's the same with people who, um, who almost drown, um, drowning, almost drowning victims um, will often have life reviews, even mm -hmm. if they weren't actually temporarily dead. Mm -hmm. Why, yeah, I, I was wondering why the, the life review and, um, you know, um, how those moments are chosen. I mean, are they, you know, the, the, the moments that the person see, are they the most significant ones or are they just random moments in their lives? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I mean, the way they describe it, there's, there's, no, um, there's none that are chosen or not chosen. It's just all of it. It's basically reliving every moment at once, which is um, when you think about it, like, it's, it's so difficult to accept that or to get your head around it because, you know, you, you brush your teeth a couple of times a day. Are you going to have, have how many? Are you, uh, yeah, am I going to see <laughs> myself brushing my teeth? Yeah, like thousands uh, as you and thousands of times or, you know, every yeah. time that you, that you, you know, ate something or whatever mundane act you did, is that also going to be alongside, you know, a time when you had some, uh, you know, important occurrence in your life? Mm. And also you briefly mentioned, um, you know, lesson to learn before going into another life. So does that imply reincarnation, the belief in reincarnation, at least in the um, societies that you've studied? Um, in some of them, yeah. There's um, in India and China, obviously, um, in a lot of the small scale societies, there's quite a lot of reincarnation belief in uh, Native American societies and in Africa. Um, but I also looked into um, in more, more contemporary stuff a little bit, um, children who remember past lives. Um, not so much, you might be familiar with the work of Ian Stevenson um, and Jim Tucker and people at uh, University of Virginia um, who have investigated these cases of children. Uh, the James Leninger case is, is the most famous one. It's been a subject of a lot of debate recently. Um, children who suddenly start talking about a past life and they say, I miss my other mom and I want to go back and see my family in whatever other village. Um, you know, they might get obsessed with military aircraft and some particular battle of World War II that they shouldn't really know about. And they might know all these, you know, quite detailed things about, about this battle and, and remember dying in a plane crash or whatever. Remember, you know, I have to put everything in kind of um, air quotes, really. Um, so I didn't really investigate them as far as whether they're true or not, or whether these children are making up stories or whatever. Uh, the ones I was interested in is ones who remembered this, the intermediate state before this rebirth. So essentially uh, the afterlife, the, the near, what would have been a near-death experience of their previous personality. But then um, it was a full death experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, 
So the previous personality died, but the child remembers um, leaving the body, often seeing the, their own funeral or seeing the body, um, going to the other world, meeting whatever deity and relatives and ancestors, and then um, often choosing the body or or uh, choosing the new personality or, or their village or their family or whatever. So yeah, I wanted to compare um, the degree to which those kinds of accounts correspond to near-death experiences. And it was interesting and somewhat surprising that they correspond amazingly well. Um, and especially the cases where, where the children, um, where they were more compelling cases. The more evidential the case, the more they seem to correspond to near-death experiences. And this is in contrast to uh, past life regression cases where um, people are allegedly hypnotized into their past life. I say allegedly because the scientific rigor of those cases has been, been pretty poor. Um, they haven't really monitored to see whether they were actually hypnotized or whether it's just some kind of visualization exercise. Mm -hmm. And when you read about, about them, they really sound like just a vis visualization. But the um, when they get recessed, uh, regressed to the between life state, the intermediate state, um, their memories are much more elaborate and detailed and full of things like, you know, Greek temples and people wearing robes and, and going to libraries and, and this kind of bureaucratic infrastructure. A lot of it sometimes sounds like um, what I would imagine a cruise ship to be like, like this kind of um, some activities a person who goes and tries to get people to, to, to um, you know, let's have a class, kids, and let's play games. And this very sort of organized thing that um, that I think probably a lot of, you know, people would, it would appeal to them because it would, it would give them a sense of security and um, some way to envision the afterlife that's not threatening. So, yeah, and those, those really don't um, reflect near-death experiences very much at all. I mean, obviously there are the the NDE features in them. There's meeting the, the relatives and, and the light and all that stuff. But because past life regression didn't really become popular until after near-death experiences were known, I think it's likely that they they picked up on that. It's all part of this whole kind of new age um, bubble of, of ideas drawing on mm -hmm. NDEs and all these other kinds of... I want, to, I want to ask a bit more about um past life regressions. But first, there's an interesting question from Dave, who's asking, are the life review instances related to belief systems that have judgment? Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, they probably are. In fact, um, mm -hmm. there's a scholar, Alan, Alan Kelly here, um, you might have heard of, he did a book called Experiences Near Death, I think in 1996. He was one of the first people to start looking at cross-cultural NDEs. Um, and he looked at them in small-scale societies. And he he was the first to notice that there were no life reviews in, in these types of societies. And he speculated that it was because um, there wasn't as much focus um, or emphasis on the individual. Um, it wasn't oh, like an individual. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like an individual-based society where a person would feel like they needed to go account for themselves in a judgment process in another world. It was more like everything was about the community. So... It's not like one person's going to go represent the community before some divine judge. So, um, yeah, that's probably, you know, that's a really good point. I really like that. And uh, it also emphasizes how 
a judgment-based belief system is somewhat related to an, indiv an individualistic belief system and an individualistic culture. Yeah. Yeah, because absolutely. in cultures in cultures that tend to be more community based you don't really have i've done research with shamanism and uh shamanic shamanic cultures and even in that case that i'd say that they are not as individual individual focus as mm -hmm. we are in western societies and you don't have as much that concept of judgment that we have right i think yeah yeah so if it's if you're dying thinking this is all about me then then you're probably gonna more likely to have a life review whereas if you're dying and thinking um i don't know how uh, i feel such sorrow for leaving the world in in a state of despair and climate change or whatever then then you might not you know mm. but when they report life review um to to have a life review is not really about judgment it's more about seeing all the instances of your life yeah it's a form of self-judgment i would say oh okay um, yeah because you you feel as i said you feel the the um, effects of your actions on other people so mm. it's kind of like instant karma you know um but yeah and i think um that does correspond to a lot of religious beliefs in the afterlife around the world where where there is this um you know, like in, in the Egyptian example, if, if you're all these gods, if you become all these gods in the other world and you're being judged, that effectively means that you and your divine state is doing the judging of, of yourself. So, and in, and in India and, you know, lots of places, there's this, this self-judgment sort of idea. Hmm. And, and yeah, none of those are, are um, well, they're all judgment cultures, I guess, but they're not, um, not all monotheistic at least, so. Hmm. So there seems to be a, some kind of human tendency towards, um, you know, wanting to feel like you've you've accounted for yourself or that or that you've um, led a good life at least. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I was thinking uh, back at the um, uh, past life regressions. So you seemed to believe that there aren't really good studies on you know whether past life regressions have. It's difficult to say, you know, in terms of the validity of those experiences, how can you verify past life? Well, yeah. there are there are some cases where um, people have tried to actually, you know, find uh, the place that the person, especially I think children, as yeah. you as you mentioned as well, uh, they tend to remember perhaps where they had been. So mm -hmm. why do you think that those studies that have uh, researched this kind of matter and try to what's the term not really verify verify maybe right. those experiences or yeah. at least what the person was recalling from a, an alleged past life why do you think that those are not um sound studies um i think the spontaneous cases with the children are are sounder more sound than than the regression cases because uh in those cases a lot sometimes the children don't even know about reincarnation um it's not even part of the culture. It is true that that the majority of them come from India or um, uh, the Druze in Lebanon. They they mostly come from cultures that have reincarnation, um, but a lot of them don't as well. So, uh, and and some of the um, they have been able to verify the actual past personality in a lot of these cases, um, 
but it's the it's the regression ones that that are more troubling to me and i think it's, it's partly just a method methodological thing uh because like i said there, there's no um they don't hook them up to eegs or whatever to to determine if they're really hypnotized um and to my knowledge there hasn't really been a good case where they've tracked down the actual past life personality and uh verified all the things that the, the regressed person has said um there is a an interesting study by um helen wambach in the late 70s and and she did quite a large-scale study she didn't try to track down individual personalities but what she did is uh put together the the facts and the cases uh the descriptions that people had of the eras in which they lived and then she compared that to actual historical data mm -hmm. um that was pretty interesting and she found that um that a lot of them actually did correspond to what was known of, of history at the time so certain events or, or even certain um you know clothes or, or cultural factors or whatever i'm not totally convinced but i thought it was it was a, a novel approach and it was you know intriguing mm -hmm. so it's more about those who intentionally try to recall the past lives as opposed to children or people that spontaneously have some kind of um memory or alleged memory from a past life yeah yeah i think there's a, a big distinction there for mm -hmm. sure and uh what about the afterlife then what kind of picture and conceptualization of the afterlife emerges from all the research that you have done what are the common denominators but also the the differences we're also interested in the differences if there are yeah. any, the patterns yeah that have yeah emerged. Um, yeah, I, th I think, I guess the way I looked at it was, was, um, going from what I found in NDEs to then speculate, given all that diversity and all the similarity, um, um, how could we understand NDEs as being real? And once we accept that, you know, just for the sake of argument, um, once we accept that, then what, what kind of afterlife could there possibly be? So so the way i would envision ndes the way i would kind of explain them um if i were to argue that they were real experiences of an afterlife which i you know not necessarily prepared to do but i i think what's what's going on it or would be something like um you know there's if you look at rather than calling it an experience there's like a, an event that's that's the kind of background of what the near-death experience form is so so there's some particular um uh, you know, being temporarily dead, having these experiences and coming back to life. And then kind of grafted onto that is the um, cultural and symbolic ways that we experience the world. And I don't mean that in the way that, um, you know, there's some objective thing and, and we're then um, describing it later once we wake up and, and putting a form on it. What I mean is while we're experiencing it, I think we're actually enculturating the experience um mm -hmm. in process if, if you know what i mean so um so there might be some being of light that's formless or personalityless or whatever but when we're in the other world we see that being of light as jesus or krishna or muhammad or, or whoever um we're going to see whatever relatives or deceased people in the other other world that are um, well, I guess that's that's a question. We're either going to see the ones that choose to come to us if they're real, or we're going to see the ones 
that for some reason our mind went to and it's going to it's going to create them um so i think it's, it's this matter of of kind of clothing the experience um with our own culture and our own expectations and our own beliefs i don't mean expectations in the sense of um people you necessarily had to have heard about an nde or know or know about this type type of experience but just your general feeling of what might happen to you when you die i think probably helps to guide the nde but but doesn't create it so i'd say that emphatically there's there's no creating the experience it's just um i just keep thinking clothing it is the best kind of analogy i can think of hmm. so then if you expand from that and think um okay then what's the next step because the the nde only tells us what it's like to die and reach a certain point it doesn't tell us you know what's beyond that barrier once you're sent back from the other world um, what would have happened to you if you weren't sent back so to speculate on what that could be like if we kind of take these ideas from ndes um, and and extrapolate from there i think it's probably um very much like a lucid dream where you're kind of um, there's this background reality that you're not consciously manipulating or creating. You're just having a dream, but then you happen to be awake inside that reality. Um, and, and in that kind of lucidity, you can uh, change the dream or you can change your um, position in the dream. You can interact with people uh, telepathically or create people or whatever. Um, but the background's already there. And unless you're like a super advanced lucid dreamer, you're not going to just create an entirely new world uh, for the most part anyway. Um, so there's a um, Oxford philosopher from the 50s, H.H. Price, and he had this idea of an intersubjective afterlife. And they didn't really know much about lucid dreaming back then. I don't think the term had even been invented, but he describes it very much like, his, like a lucid dream. But he also says that uh, the dream will be co-created with with group souls with like a group of like-minded people so it's not just like this solipsistic world that you're creating on your own it's it's an objectively real place even though it's being created by the imagination but you're doing it in combination with all these other souls of the dead so they help to kind of maintain that background reality that i was talking about but you also can't totally um, you know, create or destroy other souls or, or make them come to your, and do your bidding or whatever. It's not that kind of um, self-created place. It's, again, just clothing what is already an objectively real sort of place and, and putting your own experience and, and symbolism onto it. And I think even uh, people would possibly experience and see it in a different way. So, um, you know, if we ended up in the same afterlife, um, if you died in the UK and I died in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I might be seeing Pueblo architecture and you might be seeing, you know, thatch cottages or whatever. So, <laughs> but, but they could be the same building, you know, mm. in the other world. Mm. That reminds me of something that is very Kantian. <laughs> uh -oh. And it's, you know, the, the, um, the fact that sometimes, you know, whether it is an NDE experience or even our daily experience, uh, to use your uh, your term, everything I think it's kind of clothed because when we, you know, we do not perceive reality immediate immediately. We have filters. We have filters of our eyes, and we have filters in our mind and in the way we understand the world and the way we, um, in a way, expect the world to be. So. Mm -hmm. 
every time that we experience everything at every moment during the experience itself we are always interpreting there is never a direct connection with the experience yeah so i think that that is true of our daily and mundane life as well yeah um and so it doesn't really surprise me that uh it also shows in near-death experiences yeah um, exactly that's that's one of my main arguments too that um given how differently we experience this life um by culture and individual and everything else there's there's no reason i can think of valid reason why it all has to be the same in the next life for, for everybody. So in that sense, you know, some of us might reincarnate and some might not for whatever reasons, um, whether that's determined by the self or by actions or, or whatever um, is kind of irrelevant. But just the fact that, um, yeah, uh, the, the, the differences to me don't negate the idea that there could be a, an actual afterlife. That's something that's been argued by, by some philosophers. Uh, Keith Augustine is one. He's, and, and, uh, Richard Harris, maybe some, they, there's this idea that because NDEs are different around the world, then they, there can't possibly be an afterlife because an afterlife, of course, would be the same for everyone. Well, and it's like, <laughs> that's not, as, yeah, it's, it's not a good argument. I no, it's, it's really not. Um, and you, and you the, could equally say there is a different afterlife for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, to me, that, that kind of thinking comes from probably a subconscious, um, you know, Western Christian sort of mindset that it, that it's got to be this, and and um, th there's this kind of monolithic, monotheistic system that applies to everybody in the world, um, which is, you know, that that's really based in in monotheisms. I think. I think there's also um, an underlying concept of the truth. And the fact that in order for something to be true, it has to be objectively true. Mm. And it also underlies the fact that objectivity is a thing and actually exists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that it underlies a lot of elements that are part of uh, the Western culture. Um, yeah. Some of them linked to Christianity, others, I think, perhaps linked to the Western culture. Uh, and even the, the rationalism, um, I think, and the, the Cartesian dualism, you know, the difference between the, um, uh, the, the metaphysical world and the physical world and the fact that in order for something to be real, it needs to be universalizable, it needs to be standardizable, it needs to be um, repeatable, otherwise it's yeah. not real. Yeah. But we all have experiences that are extremely unique and unrepeatable but yeah. that doesn't make them unreal right. uh, it, it, it doesn't you know it makes them non-objective but it's not necessarily the case that in order for something to be real or to be true it mm -hmm. has to be objective if there is any such thing as objectivity that also yeah, depends well, if... on one's philosophical and religious stance Right, right. And if you talk about, you know, a mind dependent afterlife where people are co-creating this afterlife, then the subjective is the objective. There's, you know, there's no distinction between them in a way. So, yeah. For, so for some person, one person to come along and say, there can't be an afterlife because this particular model of an afterlife is what it would look like if there was, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make any sense. So, mm, yeah. 
and I get that you have a more phenomenological approach. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what is the idea that you have of the afterlife as a result of all of your research? Uh, I keep an open mind. I, I kind of feel like, um, you know, I, I, my attitude towards all this this stuff is either I, I know something or I don't know it. So um, I don't I don't really have a concept, personal concept of belief, you know, <laughs> unless mm -hmm. I experience something firsthand um, or unless I, I feel like I, I can learn it in a, in a um, I don't know, in a real sort of way. Um, it's just kind of speculation to me. Um, there's there's good speculation and there's bad speculation. So um, I think if I were, you know, to enter this kind of lucid dreaming type state when I die, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd probably think, yeah, that, that did make sense, you know. <laughs> um, or if I'm reincarnated, um, I won't be happy if I'm reincarnated, but, but, but I, you know, I might understand it for a while and, and kind of be aware of, um, you know, what's going on, when, especially in that in-between state. But, but yeah, I can't say it's changed my my actual beliefs. It's it's refined the things I don't know more, <laughs> and and I guess refined um, what seems to me most likely. Mm. I think the best way to put it. And. Um... For those who do not get reincarnated, what does the afterlife look like? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, maybe they just stay in that, you know, lucid dream type state. Maybe the, the state of being um, pure consciousness, pure spirit is um, is the ultimate. Or maybe there's then, you know, kind of bardos that you go through, um, as in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, maybe there's eventually some kind of you know, release and liberation from the whole thing. Um, that all sort of makes sense to me. It, it doesn't conflict with, um, you know, a lot of the, the NDE testimony or, or a lot of the cross-cultural material. And I like how, um, you know, some Western scientists have come to similar kinds of conclusions as, as uh, Tibetan, ancient Tibetan scholars. Um, Carl Becker is another one. He's, he's a um, Buddhism scholar. In Japan, and and he's done NDEs and Mahayana Buddhism, and he's he kind of came to the same conclusion that he thinks that um, you know these forms of Buddhism pretty much have it have it nailed the interpretation mm -hmm. of NDEs and the afterlife and sort of what what's ultimately to come. And but I, that... I don't think um, I'm sorry just just say I don't think and and I don't see any evidence for um, you know a Christian Judeo Christian type afterlife where there's that was um, uh, my my next exactly. question. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the, the, um, you know, um, how does the afterlife in those cultures that have not been affected by Christianity, how does the afterlife relate to an idea of, you know, karma or heaven and hell, you know, the, the idea that you will get punished or rewarded yeah. uh, depending on your actions? But, well, those are, yeah, those are independent from Christianity. So they, you know, they had those kinds of um, ideas of judgment anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, especially in the small scale societies, there's, there really isn't a lot of judgment. Um, there is some and there's, there's often in, in a lot of the NDEs, um, Native American ones, they'll be sent back in order to um, uh, teach people a better way of living. 
So for strangely enough, what came up a couple of times was was wife beating. Like they would send the person back and say, "Tell your people that wife beating is is not good. <laughs> you know, it's not an acceptable thing to do." Um, and they would also tell them things like, uh, "Stop wasting all these offerings on on funerary um, rituals. Like like don't." take all of your subsistence and burn it to give to the dead because we don't want it. We don't care. Just use it for yourself. Um, so these kinds of things. There, there were also quite a few examples of uh, NDEs that conflicted with Christianity and, and therefore um, caused a reaction to missionaries that the missionaries didn't expect. So the missionaries would come and say, you know, um, you need to convert to Christianity and accept Jesus. And this is the afterlife you're going to have and you're going to suffer. And the Native Americans would say, um, no, that's not true because um, this person in our tribe died and he went there and came back and told us what it was like. So wherever you're getting your information from, it's it's not true. So they, um, <laughs> it gave them a way to, to actually, um, you know, culturally combat the, the kind of colonizing religion, which was interesting. And in a lot of cases, they were even told in the other world to, um, you know, stand up against the the oppressive um, invaders and not to convert to Christianity and revitalize the, the indigenous culture. Um, and then on the other hand, sometimes they were told um, you need to accept uh, the um, culture and religion of the colonizers. That's the only way to survive. You need to just adapt and accept Jesus and whatever. Um, but this is where religions like, like the ghost dance came from. Um, there's also one called the dreamer religion, the Indian Shaker church. They were all ba based on uh, near-death experiences of their founders. They they died, came back to life, and told people what to find in the next world, and then made this attempt to democratize it to to say you know everybody can reach the state. Um, all you have to do is um, take loads of peyote or or um, you know dance and and drum for hours and hours and hours until you collapse. And then if you do that with this in your mind that you're going to go to the other world, then um, then you will. So it was kind of um, yeah, universalizing shamanism to the whole culture to get those, you know, the benefits of NDEs when people come back. I don't know if I mentioned this, but one of the main benefits is um, when people return to life, they're, they're transformed in, in this new sort of positive way. Like they're often, people say that they're much kinder, they're more altruistic, they're less greedy, less judgmental, um, whatever, um, more sort of equality minded. So in these uh, uh, Native American examples, the idea was that if these all these people die and come back, they're kind of bringing all those positive things um, from the afterlife into the into the whole community. It's not just like um, a, one person um, having this happen to them. It's it's almost like a community NDE. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, there's a question from Audley Normil. Um, and they say, have you encountered anyone describing an NDE as being in another version of their own life, uh, in another dimension, or a version of their current reality, but skewed? No. Um, you might want to ask, ask Anthony Peake about that. That's, that's kind of up his alley. I don't know if you know him. No. Um, but he, he has this uh, uh, idea that, you know, the that we basically relive our lives over and over a groundhog day kind of kind of idea mm. so so i wonder if that would fit in with um with that kind of and does it happen over. during a, a near-death experience no not not during the nde i don't think i think mm. it would just be um yeah you'd have the 
whatever death state and then come back and, and do it all over again. Um, but there is a case that I heard of that, um, you know, it's anecdotal and it was, you know, told to me by somebody who was told to them um, of a guy who had an NDE and he was, I don't know, there he was dead for minutes or hours or whatever. And he came back um, just shocked and disappointed and horrified because he had been in this other world living an entire life for 30 years or something. And he had a wife and a child and just a completely new separate life that he had gotten used to after dying. And then suddenly he's back in, in his own life. And, and in our reality, you know, only 20 minutes or whatever went by. Um, but to his, his reality, his consciousness, he, he just, um, you know, left 30 years of his life. Yeah. But that's, you know, there's only one I've heard of. It sounds like a, a great idea for a, a novel or something or a movie, but <laughs> I don't yeah. know if there's any others. Um, there is a person in my family who's had a, a near-death experience. And uh, what she told me is that um, the only thing that she saw was a light, not mm -hmm. even like a, a person or an entity of light, just light. And that she felt like uh, it was first dark and then there was light mm -hmm. and then she was called back. So okay. It was very, very basic, yeah. but you know that there are the the elements that you find in near death experiences usually, but to a very basic level, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, was was she actually called back by a, a person or an entity or something, or sent back, or she just woke up again? She, um, well, she was being reanimated in the hospital, um, but the what she told me is that she felt like a pullback. So it could okay. be either because the you know doctors and nurses were trying to reanimate her. Um, yeah, probably that's the, the physical re reason yeah. uh, I would yeah. imagine would be that one. But right. Yeah, there must be some physical sensation of, of being pulled back into your body. Um, yeah, but I think the, the, the fact that you feel pulled back in your body kind of underlies the, the sense that there is a part of you that was away from your body yeah yeah that's another interesting cultural thing there's um from the pacific i can't remember which cultures but some uh, pacific island cultures had this idea that the soul would be pushed back in the body through the big toe you know for for some reason what is that <laughs> uh through the, the soul when it would go back into the body it would be pushed through your toe your, your oh okay toe. yeah your big toe yeah so, <laughs> interesting yeah and then there's a, um, a medieval one that said that the, the soul went back through the least dignified orifice or something like that so i mean there's this idea that um it's almost like people need to explain in a physical way how the soul get, gets back in because it's it's too weird to think of otherwise like because like with your relative you know, how did she get back in if there's mm -hmm. you know speaking of souls i was having um very interesting discussion with my patrons uh, the other day and the matter of the soul actually came up and uh, we we were discussing you know the what the soul is and the concept of um, whether because it was a conversation about AI and whether they can um, have a soul or develop a soul and um, I was saying that the the perception that they were talking about when it comes to the soul appeared to me to be very christian in nature mm -hmm. and so and that i i started thinking 
you know, what could be another perception of the soul or maybe no perception of the soul from other cultural and religious point of view? Of course, I'm familiar with a few, like the Buddhist one and, um, you know, and other cultures as well, where you, where you don't even have the the idea that there is that there is a soul, mm -hmm. uh, or rather, there is no independent, solid, and permanent soul to be to be more accurate in the in describing that. Whereas in Indian cultures, you have the Atman, and so there is the um, the the concept of the soul. Yeah. But yeah, I guess what I was getting at is what is the concept and the idea of the soul that emerges from the from those accounts that you have studied from these cultures that are you know non-christian and have not even influenced each other yeah that's a good question um i i don't know if there's a particular concept of the soul that would correspond to a particular religious belief in fact i would just say consciousness should be used rather than the soul we're talking about NDEs and and the afterlife um because of that very reason because you know we've got um even in india there's atman but then there's the the vasu soul the free soul and then in um egypt there's you know the ba and the ka and the name and the shadow and um but only one of them is is seen as the actual conscious soul one of them is you know gives you the life force and um whatever and there's similar in um a lot of African societies, there's all these soul components, but it seems that for the most part, they're all, um, you know, one of them is the animating thing. One of them is, is maybe an identity thing, but there's always one, a particular one, it seems to be, that's the consciousness. So that's probably mm -hmm. the better way to conceptualize it. So is there always a perception that there is part of us that leaves the body when we die or well during the near-death experiences so there's always the perception in all the accounts that you've studied that there is some part of us however we want to conceptualize it or define it that leaves the body or and then returns into the body yeah yeah um yeah in every nde case i know of um i mean i don't know of, of any that i can think of where the person came back and and said um that didn't really happen. It was just a dream. You know, there's there's a real clear distinction between dreams and, and NDEs. Um, that you know, Susan Blackmore will claim that, but when you read the, what actually happened, is she smoked some weed and, and had what she thought was an out-of-body <laughs> experience, and then and then thought, no, that can't be. You know, so um, there's the account of A.J. Ayer, who's a, a materialist philosopher, who's a pretty famous atheist who had an NDE, and he came back and said. Um, you know, I saw a being of light or whatever. I saw a divine being. I'm going to have to change all my books and opinions. Um, and then he later thought better of it and kind of recanted and said, well, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, people, you know, believe that they are what they actually appear to be, um, which is, you know, dying and coming back to life. So, I mean, not, I, I guess to clarify that, not everybody in the world believes in that these things are even possible. Um, but the majority do. There was a study in the 70s, um, Dean Shields, I think his name was, uh, and he he surveyed um, massive amounts of uh, small-scale indigenous societies around the world, and he found that 95% of them believed in out-of-body experiences, and most of them believed it because they knew of it happening within their culture. So that's pretty amazing that only 5% 
of of these cultures um, didn't believe that out of body experiences were possible. Yeah. And you, that makes you think that must be because maybe nobody ever had one in, in their society. And uh, it, it would be good if we could follow up over the years and see if they change that belief. And if in most cases during the near-death experience, there's the experience of, in a way, uh, part of you that leaves the body and then returns to it, is there any connection or relation that you can find between out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, near-death experience just incorporates an out-of-body experience, really, and it's, and it's in a specifically death context. So yeah, if somebody has an out-of-body experience and it's and it's while they're temporarily dead, then I would count that as a as an NDE, really. Um, but yeah, people say they can be, um, you know, deliberately generated or they can be experienced through different practices and techniques. Um, but I guess I should also clarify too that even you know I mentioned these accounts where people walk walk down a road to the to the other world. Mm. rather than going through a tunnel and, and soaring into the light. Um, there's a lot of accounts that don't actually tell us that they left their body. They just say, um, I died and I went to another world, or I died and I found myself walking along the path of souls or whatever. So, but I, I think just because we don't have a, a clear description of an out-of-body experience, I don't think it means that they thought that they went there in bodily form, especially because everybody else in their culture would, would have seen them lying there dead. So so they wouldn't have thought that they went there in physical form either. Yeah. I think there's a tendency in a lot of um, anthropological studies and, and in religious studies a lot actually of um, denigrating the accounts from the very people that um, you know give us our material to study and, and, and kind of negatively evaluating them. So, so there's a real kind of um, as you probably know, sort of anti-religious experience, uh, uh, postmodernist influenced um, mm. sort of um, perspective that. Do you mean in terms of discounting them? Yeah, yeah, and and seeing them in terms of, you know, all experiences culturally generated. So therefore, there can be no such thing as an mm. experience type that people can base beliefs on. You know, so there can't be such a thing as an NDE because, of course, they're culturally generated, but they're not because they're spontaneous. So, so that's a, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, um, even the religious studies is supposed to be this, you know, sort of neutral anthropological, non-evaluative um, approach, you know, or, or take those types of approaches. It's not supposed to say um, your beliefs aren't true. That's exactly what it says when it comes to religious experience. I'm talking about people think... like Robert Scharf and um, mm. Proudfoot and Brian Bocking. My experience in the UK with religiously scholars have been has been quite positive, actually, mm -hmm. in terms of uh, them being very open, you know, to uh, the the experiences of the, of our informants, um, basically. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I know that it it really it's probably a recent development. I only have experience with um, scholars in the UK and other scholars in in Europe. Yeah, it's a kind of faction. It seems that's been. It started with uh, Stephen Katz and is it Stephen Katz in uh, like 1978, something like that. He wrote the, this first paper about the, um, yeah, the, the basically non-existence of of objective religious experience, and and there was a whole debate about um, 
whether there's there's such a thing as contentless experience and the, and it all kind of intersects with the anti-comparison thing that was going on for a long time like um the act of comparison is a colonialist endeavor and and you can't compare because it it denies the individuality of each culture which um i don't think that's going on as much anymore uh, it was kind of 90s and 2000s that seem to be have a real stranglehold on religious studies but um yeah hopefully it's it's not as bad and, I, and it seems like anthropology has been more open-minded about this kind of thing yeah my experience is that um, anthropology i have you know is quite open-minded there are still things that you know you're not supposed to include so for instance if you are an anthropologist and you do um participant observation with people because i work with the contemporary world and with people uh, and there are some so-called extraordinary experiences that happen on the field those are just data that you know it's excluded from yeah. from the picture right. so i know that there are some scholars that have also argued in favor of including these ones as well like um um what's his name <laughs> i it escapes me now uh, jack it's oh, jack hunter yeah jack hunter yeah, yeah. jack hunter and uh, fiona bowie right, and also yeah. edith turner also yeah. wrote about it yeah and yeah. erica bourguignon and yeah, and there were actually two anthologies of articles about um, anthropologists being changed in the field by their extraordinary experiences. Um, Goulet, I think is the, the editor's name. So yeah, I mean, that's, but that seems to be something that, that um, you know, at least in sort of, I don't know, AAR type mainstream religious studies doesn't seem to have impacted them much. Um, I, I think there's a real chip on the shoulder of religious studies a lot of times. They're so concerned with distinguishing themselves from theology that um anything that seems theology and there. religious studies are yeah. like yeah so two, two cousins that, seems... that that like to fight with each other right so there's this you know if you if you start talking about um you know these experiences might be real or whatever then you've smuggled theology into religious studies and you're a crypto theologian and all these mm -hmm. sorts of um you know you, you've somehow crossed the line from being a good scholar and an objective scholar to being you know, a, a new age woo-woo kook or something. Yeah, there's also <laughs> the the idea of a religionist approach, which means that you have kind of, you know, the, the kind of attitude or that you are using the perspective from uh, your religious belief point of view as opposed, uh, as opposed to using academic um, methodology. So yeah. I, I always think when it comes to these kind of matters, I think that the matter is, in my mind, at least, it's very simple. I mean, everybody has beliefs. Everybody has a religious belief, you know, including anthropologists and are studying religions, whether it's their religion or a religion that they don't, don't espouse. I think that it doesn't matter because as long as you use a proper academic methodology, a proper data analysis, then, you know in a way if you are also a practitioner it can give you an advantage in terms of um it might be easier to network with people and mm. get the right contacts so that you can get into the community and participate as a researcher clarifying that you're a researcher collect mm. data and then analyze the data so i think the fact that you are or not a practitioner doesn't really matter as long as the academic methodology 
analysis and everything is is in place because everybody's gonna have then you could also argue that if somebody is christian and is studying pagans then there would be a bias but right. i think that um you know to um you know i think that it's really it really doesn't matter what the belief of the person is because if you are yeah. studying the, the those communities properly you know you will just report what they are doing yeah and i think being clear about your beliefs and your or philosophical commitments or whatever is is a good thing to to do I, and, yeah i hear that more from u.s scholars and much less from european scholars so hmm. i think that it's interesting there's a difference there yeah. I think european scholars tend to be at least now a bit more open in terms of you know they don't discount at least in my experience they don't discount informants experiences mm -hmm. but at the same time they tend to be very private and encourage you if you are a an early career young scholar they would encourage you to not share whether you are a practitioner or not uh, um, yeah. whereas in the again, us it's the opposite <laughs> right i'm just thinking again of susan blackmore the the um near-death experience psychologist in the uk um researcher who um she's a buddhist and so she she very clearly has a commitment to the doctrine of anatta no self and her interpretation of ndes is is basically totally buddhist in that way totally different than carl becker's buddhist interpretation of ndes to her it's like you know this is um the self is a construct so therefore there is no self to be able to have an nde there's no possibility for this you know consciousness to survive and all that and she doesn't say that in the in the book so much she doesn't make that connection um, but reading it through that lens, it's it's pretty clear. So so in that sense, I think um, I think scholars should be open about their their prior commitments, because I mean, if I were to be open about my prior commitments, it would be, you know, um, that I have none, pretty much. I mean, I mean, I, I lean towards you know maybe maybe perennial philosophy sort of thing or something, um, but but I think even that is important in in knowing. Um, you know, I would, my books to, to yeah. know where I'm coming from because I'm I'm not surprised you're a fan of perennial philosophy since you've done so much comparative research. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm super I'm super critical of it, and <laughs> but but there's a part of me that kind of you know that was attractive to me when I first started studying Jungian stuff and whatever. Um, I think there's a lot of problems with it, but um, yeah, it's just you know knowing where the person's coming from, I think is is important. It just reminds me there was a um, when I was at, at uh, Lampeter um, and I, I taught a course on um, pagans and Christians in the ancient world, and one of the internal reviewers, one of the, the um, people there who who reviewed the module, it was a distance learning module. Um, she she said it was apologetics. It had an apologetics flavor to it, and I thought I'm on the side of the pagans or on the side of the Christians because I totally did not get it you know, i don't have any um, <laughs> christian upbringing or anything and to me it was the exact opposite so i just thought it was interesting and i thought if she knew that i wasn't a theologian or not a christian or whatever would she have read it in a different way mm. yeah that's also another thing i think that um what if the bias is created by the person reading it having in mind what are your beliefs, beliefs that's a point too yeah so yeah, it's, it's, it's like 
Yeah, it's like if you're upfront about what your beliefs are, uh, so that you can sort of uh, put up front your biases, then you are creating biases in the reader as well. Yeah, yeah so, that's a good point. Yeah, I guess there's yeah. no easy answers to any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, whatever you do, it's always going to be <laughs> complicated. But that's why I think one of the things that I always say on my channel to my viewers is that um, the general public tends to see science and research as, you know, aiming at discovering the truth. And so once there is a study on something, that it means, okay, we've got it. We have the truth on that specific matter. But that's not how science works. You know, neither social science or natural science or humanities is not about finding the truth. It's about discovering more knowledge. And since knowledge is a moving target, you will always have that new studies will perhaps contradict other studies, previous studies, or there will be a new theoretical lens whereby to look at that specific thing. And so even the, the result of the study will, will change or the, the kind of knowledge that you will acquire will be different because you're using a different lens. So for instance, when you talk about NDE, understood by um, a Buddhist, that believes in the no-self, I would say that she's perhaps using a theoretical framework to interpret data, which is something that every scholar also does. Right, yeah. Uh, so I haven't read that book specifically, but I would imagine that uh, she also talks about the kind of theories that she's working with when she is interpreting the data. Um, so for instance, I use a Foucauldian methodology but uh, that's not a religion <laughs> but it is still it is still a theoretical framework and uh, a methodology that i'm employing and if i were to use another one you would get different results and it is fine to use another one i'm not saying that's the necessarily the only one but yeah. it is the one that i think that is most useful to get the most accurate knowledge possible when you are dealing with something that is as elusive as contemporary paganism or uh, transcultural shamanism mm -hmm. i think that there are some but i understand that uh, there are people that uh, really um challenge the Foucauldian methodology as not leading to accurate knowledge when it comes to other matters but i would argue that when it comes to something that is loose and difficult to grasp um, mm -hmm. you cannot really make it into a structured neat and tidy belief system just right. because you know it would make your research easier yeah. you have to acknowledge the fact that it is much more fluid and um, varied and you have to find a methodology that mirrors that mm -hmm. yeah yeah, that's, you know, there's a parallel with, with my work where, you know, the question, I'll talk about all this stuff and cross-cultural NDEs and the history of them and afterlife beliefs. And the question everyone wants to know, but is there an afterlife, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't ask that because I didn't want you <laughs> to be a crypto theologian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but it's funny, you know, because, um, and I just want to say like, but wait, isn't this interesting? Isn't like the origin of beliefs in an afterlife being rooted in a near-death experience isn't that in itself an interesting thing and and why are they different and why are they similar but no the only the only thing people want to know is are they true you know mm. so. and what do you answer to that <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i say there there i think that there are reasonable grounds um for such a belief if if one wanted to have them 
So <laughs> I think given the, um, you know, I, I don't really go much into the the science of NDEs and, and the, the kind of, um, you know, evaluation of, of veridical cases or the verticality in, in cases. Um, so, but I, you know, I know, I know enough about it to, to think that there are things that haven't been explained by explained away by um, materialist science. Every few months, there's a new article in some online journal saying, you know, we've now explained away near-death experiences. We now know it's the dying brain because of this, 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 and this. And uh, not one of them talks about cross-cultural NDEs or historical NDEs. They all base their models on on this, um, you know, popularized Western conception of what an NDE is. So. That's obviously not going to work as, as a human, pan-human kind of theory if, um, for example, people in small-scale societies are not having life reviews. Um, but the Western science is telling us there's a burst of activity at death. That's the life review. And, you know, it's just totally speculative. So anyway, I, I just think that there's it hasn't been explained away. And I think um, some of the um, seemingly veridical cases are intriguing. And and I and because of the cross cultural evidence and everything else, I think it's it's not irrational to have a belief in an afterlife, so, mm -hmm. and, and also with reincarnation. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a a good note to end our conversation with. <laughs> so how can how can people find you if they want to find you or support your work? Uh, they can go to my website, which is just gregoryshushan.com. Um, I also have a Patreon site, which is Patreon slash Gregory Shushan, I think. <laughs> and my books on Amazon. This is the new, the new one is the next world, extraordinary experiences of the afterlife. Um, this is the kind of least academic one I've written. It puts together um, various stray writings that I've done here and there, including um, the only one that's that's um, is has this stuff on mediumship and which we didn't talk about but there's a lot about mediumship in there and uh, reincarnation and just kind of overview of um ndes and and pro other problems with ndes like revelations for example you know you get these revelations in ndes and then they don't come true so you know what does that mean it's another interesting issue and then um my second book which is um near-death experience in indigenous religions um that will be out next year in paperback as well at the moment it's like 85 dollars from oxford university press but um it'll be affordable <laughs> next year so yeah. Mm. but yeah everybody you will find all the links in the info box or show notes depending what platform you're you're on at the moment and i will also have uh, a pinned comment after the show ends uh, so uh, please check out um, dr shoshan's uh, links and the books and the website and everything <laughs> thanks so thank you so much for being uh here on the show on angela symposium gregory it was yeah, really you, a really interesting conversation and i hope to have you back at some point great anytime to do some collaborations yeah and absolutely. let me first acknowledge uh Jeanette says trick and treat thank you so much and thank you vocatus you're always very uh generous and um he's a, a patron of mine and um yeah uh, i'm really fond of our conversations <laughs> every time we have very deep conversations about psychology and the secret and the occult so uh thank you everybody for 
for being here. Thank you again, Gregory. And uh, for all of you guys who are watching this now or afterwards, if you like this video, don't forget to smash the like button, subscribe to the channel and activate the notification bell because otherwise YouTube will not tell you when I upload a new video or when I'm doing a live stream with an interesting guest like today. And uh, yeah, and you will find all the ways of supporting my work if you want to keep this project alive in the info box. You have links to Patreon, PayPal. Uh, you can um, super chat or super thank me. <laughs> there are lots of ways of supporting this channel. And I really hope to see you next in the next video or live stream. And I hope that you stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now.